When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the topics you're discussing about the beautiful game. I'm Ian McGarry and with me, of course, is Duncan Castles. Lots of news for you on today's podcast regarding Manchester United, Borussia Dortmund, Bournemouth, as well as Barcelona. We're going to start, though, at Old Trafford and interesting negotiating tactics surrounding the potential move of Jadon Sancho to Manchester. We understand that right wing, as opposed to some reports uh, in recent days about centre-back is still the priority for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in terms of his recruitment this summer. We also told you last Friday that Sancho has agreed in principle personal terms with Manchester United in the past two weeks. The emergence, however, of Mason Greenwood as a major influence in the Manchester United team, I think it's fair to say, Duncan, has be- is almost a godsend for Solskjaer with regards to this particular negotiation. Given Greenwood's form on the right side of that attacking trident, uh, his goals as well, we've even got the much-anticipated and and widely predictable he should be given an England call-up as well on the table. Um, Do you think this will influence uh, in terms of Dortmund being more realistic about the price tag for Sancho? I think it's more likely to influence with the Glazers being prepared to put less money into the deal to secure Jaden Sancho. Um, right wing is a priority for Manchester United. They've gone into this summer's um, transfer window for a long time looking at players that can fill that role and they're still saying that that is the position, the number one position that they want to improve in this summer. However, they are trying to keep a cap on spending. Um, They have been hit, uh, as all football clubs have been, by COVID. But because of uh, the way they've addressed the problem, by not furloughing staff, in fact, by keeping um, temporary staff employed, um, even though there haven't been any use for them at at the stadium, um, by putting a lot of money into uh, local charitable causes, they have taken on a bigger financial hit than um, other Premier League clubs have. And they're concerned um, at the, the, the impact that will have going forward on, on financial accounts that didn't look good um, when they were last published. And also they still have the question over whether they will be in the Champions League with um, the substantial differences that makes to their revenue for the coming season, um, dependent on qualifying for the competition, also um, on rebates that they would have to pay to some of their frontline sponsors if they fail to make Champions League two years in a row. They look like they're going to get that. If you look at their current form, the strong 
uh, set of results and also um, the possibility, the strong possibility that Manchester City will be excluded from the competition, but thus making fifth place um, an access point to the Champions League for the first time for a Premier League club. That should um, secure that revenue. But they're, they're in a war, I think, with Borussia Dortmund at the moment. Um, as you reported in the last podcast, they have, um, in principle, agreed salary terms with Sancho. So they have um, the player in place in terms of um, agreeing that he would be ready to come to Manchester United next season. Dortmund are in that difficult um, area where um, they have two years left on contract. He is um, one of the most valuable players in Europe at present. In fact, uh, the um, Football Observatory and, and Switzerland Academic Institute that's uh, uh, very strong in football finances uh, published the report this week using their um, a transfer market value calculator, which which isn't a, by any means a perfect tool, but uh, they valued Jaden Sancho on um, their algorithm at 180 million euros um, with his present two years of contract remaining, and, and and suggested that were Dortmund to secure an extra year of of contract on on Sancho, which is something that they have uh, intimated and talked about as being a possibility if they don't receive uh, the the fee that they they feel he is worth this summer, that that value would go up to 223 million. Um, And I'm sure that uh, that will be um, cited in discussions um, by Dortmund and and will also be used by Jadon Sancho's representatives in any discussions with Dortmund should uh, it come to uh, a point where he ends up um, staying at Dortmund and, and extending his contract there and some kind of release clause being put in for the subsequent season. Dortmund today have uh, made it known through the German press that they want to put a deadline on this. Um, they want any deal uh, to be done by the 10th of August is the um, the, the date that they, they've told um, German press that they uh, they want this this matter resolved. Um, there has been, I understand, no formal bid from Manchester United at this stage. What you have uh, is noises from the club um, and briefings that they won't go above fifty million pounds, and that um, briefing actually fits with some information I have from within the club about limitations and caps they want to put on spending this summer. That they they, they do want to limit maximum transfer fee on um, a deal for a player coming in to £50 million if they can. I don't think they can get Sancho for £50 million. I don't think Dortmund will, will sell for that price. Um, therefore, you get into this haggling process and you, get, you, you have to look and see what pressure the player will place on Dortmund um, to get out. And I guess you find out from that um, to what extent Sancho sees Manchester United this summer as being absolutely the place he wants to go to, or whether he's prepared to wait another year and you know agree at improved financial terms at Dortmund uh, and see if there's a broader market for him and more clubs with the financial capacity to do the kind of deal that Dortmund want to do. 
in a year's time once the the impact of COVID and and uh, we and we have an assessment on when fans are coming back to the stadium has, has properly filtered through various clubs accounts. Manchester United, you have to say, are in certainly in a stronger position because of Mason Greenwood's recent performances. Um, we've known that this was a superb talent from before he ever broke into the Manchester United team. And the stories of what he was capable of doing is his ability to finish off both feet and an ability to, to strike the ball early and catch goalkeepers out um, has been evidenced in, in the way he's played for the, for the first team. Um, he has done very well post-restart coming off the right wing and there must be a temptation there to keep him on the right wing. But I think long term, he's probably more likely to be a centre forward for Manchester United. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that they sign Sancho and that completely blocks um, Greenwood's ability to play for the first team. Um, he is just 18. He is doing really well. He's only played, um, I think, 31% of Premier League minutes for uh, Manchester United so far this season. Um, eight Premier League goals, one assist and 17 goals in all competitions from 41 appearances. I think there is a risk of getting carried away. There's no question mark about his talent, but you, I think you do have to be careful about how often you play a player like that in the first team um, while he's still a, a teenager. And, and if you put the expectation in that he will be a starter every week, then that changes the dynamic of the way he's playing and, and the, the psychology around it. And also you have, as you mentioned, the story of now he has to be in the England team and you know Solskjaer not being opposed to the idea of him being promoted to the England team. We know what that can do to players as well when you add that extra level of expectation that um, he could be a starter for England going into a, a, an international tournament year. So the... You know, the, the logical way to look at it for Manchester United is we, we now have a really good option and, a, and, and someone who looks clearly will be a, a starter for this team in the next two or three years. And um, we could have over 10 years of a, of a top level forward. But let's build that career carefully, um, not overexpose him and bringing in of a, a, a top level player like Jaden Sancho on the right wing to add into um, your attacking options is not going to hurt the club um, going forward into next season. I've seen over the weekend, Duncan, some people making comparisons with Wayne Rooney uh, when he left Everton from Manchester United and after the Euros in 2004, where uh, you and I were both there and he played like a dream until he got injured obviously in the quarterfinal um, and was just the same age as Greenwood but played with that freedom which was just magnificent to watch um, the goals he scored in the in the uh, the group stages were superb uh, I think what Greenwood's got is more support around him uh, both at Manchester United and England in terms of talented players so I don't think he'll be under as much pressure uh, as Rooney was then. However, um, having seen what that pressure can do to a player, uh, I would 
caution about people making those comparisons so quickly. Uh, I did speak to a, a very experienced agent who I should stress is not involved in the Jaden Sancho transfer in any way, shape or form uh, yesterday. And his opinion was that uh, there are two things, two factors here, which are uh, central to what will evolve over the course of the summer. One is that uh, Solskjaer is putting himself in a position of strength with regards to Manchester United's current form. 15 games unbeaten, they're looking like a, a kind of force to be reckoned with again, looking like a team who can challenge. He's saying the right things. He's being backed up by players who now appear, whereas before they may not have looked like they were as committed to his philosophy or regime. They now look like a team who are very much connected and engaged with their coach and with each other. Um, which is obviously producing results on the pitch. So going to the Glazers at this moment in time and saying, OK, we have to strengthen because this team is far from complete, uh, would be a good time for Solskjaer to take advantage of the team's performances and results to ensure that he gets what he needs. But also, there are only so many occasions when you get a free run and again, this is the agent speaking, not me. When you've got a free run at a player like Sancho, which it seems Manchester United have, and therefore to capitalise on that in order to get a deal done, why not just offer Dortmund a, a financial package, which doesn't uh, mean a massive financial outlay up front, but instead, as we've seen with transfers already, this summer, um, whereby you pay X amount up front and then the rest are add-ons regarding the player's performance or the team's success with him in it. So giving Dortmund either the opportunity to uh, take more money in the future with regards to uh, Sancho making England appearances, uh, their success in domestic and European competitions, um, or indeed uh, a sell-on clause which could also be a way of resolving the difference in valuation between both clubs. That seems to me, Duncan, to be a sensible way uh, in the COVID environment of doing a deal of this magnitude in order that everyone gets what they want. Because it appears to me the player wants to leave. Dortmund would probably rather sell for the right price than, as you say, risk selling him a much cheaper valuation next summer with a year left in his contract. Would you see that as something which may be the way forward? I don't think if you're Dortmund, you want to take a sell-on clause um, for selling to Manchester United um, because Manchester United's intention will be to hold the player indefinitely. Um, so you probably won't see any money from that. Definitely Dortmund saw this as the summer to cash in on Jadon Sancho and they valued the player over 100 million euros and, and still do. And because of COVID, that has um, stripped away most of the market. And you you have a position where Manchester United are, think they have a clear run and, uh, and believe that they can negotiate the price down to something very cheap, which would be... Um, a coup if they could, you know, if they could get Sancho for fifty million pounds, which is what they they're stating they would like to do, and what what 
albeit it looks like a negotiating stance, that's their their hope. Um, that would be a, a phenomenal uh, piece of work in the market if he continues to progress in the way um, he looks as though he's going to do and to bring a, an English, a young English player with star potential. It ticks a huge number of boxes for Manchester United. I think Solskjaer um, has emphasised that he wants to develop Greenwood and he's been working on him and in many ways um, Solskjaer is a great manager for Greenwood to have because you have a, a, a man who is was a very intelligent striker and can pass on um, coaching skills and developmental skills to the player coming through. Um, but does he put pressure on the, on the board to uh, capitalise on, on the run of the results he has now or does he get caught out with what has happened to Manchester United in the past is when um, the, a team looks like it's, it's progressing and succeeding. The Glazers tend, have tended to stop spending money. Um, there's no doubt that Greenwood is a far cheaper option for Manchester United and for the Glazer family um, if they think the idea that you can make him a regular first-team player and avoid spending the, the, the big sum of money on Sancho is one that will work then on, on a contract perspective and obviously no transfer fee, that is the, the, the solution which uh, look, makes the bottom line look good and allows them to continue paying themselves uh, large dividends going forward. I think that that's going to be the concern for Solskjaer. Um, and I, I wonder how strong his, his position in, in these kind of discussions with the, the ownership can ever be because it has been a problematic season for them. Um, they are still on course um, for one of their lowest points totals ever in the Premier League. There's a there's a, a headiness about recent performances, but we're going to talk about Bournemouth later. Defeating Bournemouth 5-2 isn't really shouldn't really be taken as a sign that a team is complete and finished and and on the right path. Um, they you know they struggled past Norwich in the FA Cup. Um, a couple of weeks ago and uh, struggled at Tottenham in the first game after the restart. All of these games are played under artificial conditions of no spectators. Um, you probably see referees more likely to favour the bigger teams. We've seen across the leagues that the bigger teams tend to do well in these closed doors conditions. Um, I think drawing too many conclusions from this period is a dangerous one for Manchester United. And the, the whole Sancho situation is going to be fascinating to, to watch to see what the Glazers will approve of in this context when they do have that opportunity. We told you about their interest in Jack Grealish, an alternative who would definitely be cheaper than Jaden Sancho. They, Ian, last year you told us about James Madison, another player, um, of a similar bent that they, they've pursued for quite a while. There were those um, uh, verbal offers to Barcelona for Ansu Fati, um, which is, a, again, a player in a similar position. Uh, you can see the importance of um, recruiting in that area to the team. Um, do they actually spend the money to take who they had identified as being the strongest option on the market 
when Dortmund are ready to sell him this summer, or do they back off and uh, and go for a cheaper option instead? Well, many of you, um, since that Bournemouth game, and you know that as a podcast, we um, respond to you, we engage, and we definitely uh, take a lot of note of our timelines, have been asking about, is centre-back a priority for Manchester United? I think that's come about on the back of that um, rather cheeky junior Stanislas nutmeg on Harry Maguire. Uh, Maguire, a player who's come under, as you all know, uh, a lot of scrutiny on the Transfer Window podcast uh, since his move to Manchester United. Um, we may well be addressing that later in the week. We're going to save that one up for you. Um, however, we will, as always, answer questions uh, on our social media timelines as well on that. Uh, but we want to take you now to, from the uh, travails at Manchester United with regards to negotiating and haggling, to what I think, Duncan, we can fairly describe um, as the new FC Hollywood of world football, and that would be Football Club de Barcelona, um, where there's been so much going on, um, almost ridiculously uh, different narratives, etc. Uh, a report published this morning uh, with regard to um, the club's alleged attacking of their own employees, including high-profile players. Um, on social media um, but they've been cleared by all of that by amazingly enough um, an audit which was commissioned by themselves and paid for them by themselves but the main situation um, at Camp Now right is the manager's job and the position of Kiki Setien who of course replaced Ernesto Valverde in January uh, Xavi the former captain and legend of the club much touted to take over this uh, summer and be in place for next season. Somewhat surprised a lot of people in Catalonia uh, last weekend when he signed a new contract with his current club. Duncan, it seems to me that Chaffee is um, quite a clever man. He sees the um, difficulties that... Uh, are inherent in taking the head coach's job at Barca right now and perhaps wants to be the man who comes after the next man. Do you think that's a fair um, assumption or or do you think he's playing a shorter political game with regards to uh, getting what he wants in terms of conditions in order to take the job uh, for next season? Well, he could have been manager already. Um Joseph Maria Bartomeu tried to appoint Xavi to replace Ernesto Valverde in January and Xavi rejected that opportunity. Um, he was the coach who supporters wanted to bring in. I think you, you, you say he seems to be a clever man. He definitely comes across as a very intelligent individual um, and was a super intelligent footballer. And and essentially the basis of Barcelona supporters wanting him is because of his intelligence on the pitch. Um, he has been Al Saad coach in Qatar for less than a year. Um, he hasn't exactly covered himself in glory at Al Saad. They're currently third in the Qatar league, 10 points behind leaders Alder Hale. 
um, he inherited the champions, replacing the, a very old and um, wise uh, Portuguese coach, Gesualdo Ferreira. Um, so you certainly wouldn't be in any normal world where you're looking for a man to sort out the huge problems at Barcelona. Uh, and I think if you, you want to go through the detail of those, I'd refer our listeners back to the podcast we did with um, Graham Hunter recently, um, where we talked about a lot of those issues. But if you were choosing from a blank uh, sheet of paper, the manager uh, to deal with those issues, you wouldn't pick a man who has less than a year's experience coaching in Qatar and who's taken the champions down to third place. Talking to some people who have um, observed his coaching there, they they, they say the team has has been weakened uh, with him in charge. and he has not only the champions, it's the majority of the Qatar national team are in that Al-Sad side. However, put, put all that to one side, if Bartomeu wants to appoint him now, um, one of the opponents to Bartomeu um, or Bartomeu's camp, because Bartomeu will have to step down in the presidential elections next year, Victor Font is on record as saying he would bring Xavi back as a priority where he did become president. So he now has the, the, the current incumbents and um, one of the strongest opponents to replace um, Bartomeu, uh, championing him as the man to sort out Barcelona's problem as coach. On top of that, and probably far more important, Lionel Messi wants him to come in as coach. I'm told by people close to Lionel Messi. Um, We have what seems to be an almost eternal um, cyclical problem at Barcelona, which is Messi um, unhappy with the way the club is run, um, unhappy that they are going, almost certainly going to lose La Liga, unhappy that he thinks that they are not in shape um, to win the Champions League again. Um, unhappy with his treatment by the club, um, that uh, social media investigation that you, you mentioned earlier, um, one of the things that has angered him, and out of contract in a year's time, and uh, uh, having a clause in his contract, we understand, which is allow- allows him to leave um, at the end of each season should he choose to do so. And I think that, above, above all else, is provoking this um, move for Xavi by Bartomeu um, because he needs to solve the Lionel Messi problem before he solves any other problem. Messi wants Xavi, um, therefore pushed to bring the coach in and, and, and uh, try and push the many, many issues that Barcelona are facing as a football club, as a football team because of their squad structure, um, because of an ageing squad, because of the money that's been wasted on um, recruitment over the last few years. Um, down the line by uh, by having another, well, it would be the second managerial announcement inside uh, seven months. You ask the question, does Xavi want to do it or not? That, for me, is the, is the key to this. Um, and I have suggestions from people who have spoken to him that um, Xavi is indeed playing a longer game here. He's managed to get himself a pair eyes at Qatar. He is very important to the Qataris as an ambassador um, for the, the World Cup. Um, so they want to retain him. And that's one of the reasons why he was given the new one-year deal at Al-Sad, I'm told. He definitely wants to manage Barcelona. But think of it from Xavi's perspective. 
is it better to come in as the choice of Lionel Messi when you know Lionel Messi has the influence to change the manager in the space of a few months when he's unhappy with performances? Or is it better to wait until Messi has retired um, as a player or decided that he wants to go and play in another country for another club to finish his career um, and then come in without that um, extremely unusual setup where the most important person at the club, not just on the pitch, but in every dimension of the club's decision-making is one player, yes, one of the two best players in the world, one of the best players of all time, but one player who used to be your former teammate. Um, Xavi has said that when he comes to Barcelona, he wants to have control to change things. He's not stupid. He knows the squad is a mess. He knows um, it's going to be difficult to get Barcelona playing the kind of football they played when he was there. And he wants the decks set up in a way that he has the best opportunity to achieve that. So perhaps the strategy for him is allow both presidential candidates to push for him, allow Messi to push for him now, and uh, and then say, well, sorry, I have a commitment here in Qatar. Um, it's not that I don't want to come back to Barcelona, but now isn't the right time for me. The fall from grace has been quite spectacular, Duncan, in terms of um, we're talking about Barcelona side who going into the resumption of La Liga, had a lead over Real Madrid, which has now become a substantial deficit compared to um, where they were. Obviously, there have been problems. Uh, we know that the dressing room is divided. We uh, have reported in the podcast about Antoine Griezmann being a negative influence, that Usman Dembele, Philip Coutinho have been obviously gross mistakes with regards to the amount of money invested in them and transfer fees and wages, etc. And now Barcelona seem to be crumbling, um, both on and off the pitch, because politically it's becoming internecine warfare, multiple resignations from the board, um, very much uh, dissent from the fans. Uh, and they must look at their club and think, who do we side with? Our legendary captain, Leo Messi, uh, the club itself, in the old phrase of no one's bigger than the club, or do the socios support the return of you know, the king, who would be former captain Xavi Hernandez, uh, to come and hopefully save them from what could be a disastrous, not just this season in losing the league to Real Madrid, but potentially seasons ahead, um, despite the fact that uh, both clubs, uh, and I say both clubs, I mean Madrid and Barcelona, have financial difficulties for different reasons. It just seems to me to do a complete mess, and it needs like all, it just, they need to clear the decks, both upstairs and in the dressing room. I think return of the prince rather than the king, because the king will always be Leo Messi. <laughs> Well, true. Well, okay, the king is dead long with the king. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that, I think, is the essence of the problem here. Um, the, Barcelona have thought about succession for, for Messi in the past and they have thought about selling the player. And, um, and the, the conclusion has always been, we cannot do this. The, the supporters won't stand for it. 
um, and understandably so. Uh, but as long as Messi is has the power he has at Barcelona without actually leading, it's a kind of quiet power. It's uh, every so often you get these grumblings, um, which usually end up being resolved um, with an improved contract for Leo Messi. I'm not saying he's not interested in the success in the field. He is absolutely interested in success in the field. A lot of these grumblings are about um, not having the opportunity to win more Champions League titles at the club. But um, the end product has typically been not a successful Champions League campaign, but definitely more money um, from the club's uh, substantial resources going towards Messi. Again, I'm not saying he doesn't deserve that money. Um, there's, there's an obvious argument why he should have the best contract in football. But does that resolve Barcelona's problems? Clearly it has not. Clearly those problems have intensified. And um, I think when you have a framework of a presidential um, socio club, which in many ways is a you know a fantastic way for a club to be structured, um, the idea that the supporters run the club is obviously a positive one, but you have the issue of elections and you have the issue of the people in power wanting to retain their power at the club and making decisions that help them win elections rather than um, are in the best interests of the club long term. Um, and you can't see an obvious resolution to this. Um, Kiki Setien's only been there since January. He's been in charge for 19 games. He's won 12, drawn four, lost three. They're four points behind Madrid, four games to play. Um, they're going to lose, or almost certainly going to lose that title to a Madrid side that isn't brilliant. Um, and they have serious financial issues to deal with, regardless of the, the kind of creative accountancy we talked about um, in recent podcasts in terms of uh, signing Pjanic from Juventus and moving uh, Artur to, uh, to Juventus for, uh, for a supposed fee of 80 million euros to, to help with their FFP arrangements for next season. That they, they have been papering over the cracks for a long time. And uh, I don't see anything about the current situation, which looks like they're going to um, repair um, the holes in the wall this summer. Briefly, before we leave this particular issue, um, it has been suggested by our good friend of the Transfer Window podcast, Graham Hunter, that Manchester City would most likely be the only credible destination should Lionel Messi leave Barcelona. Um, but also suggested that that would mean um, the departure of Guardiola first. Now, we know that towards the end, uh, and certainly at the end of Pep Guardiola's time at Barcelona, he and Messi had a fractious relationship, to say the least. Um, Timing-wise, that may not be possible, even though... Certainly, City are probably one of the only clubs in the world who could afford Messi's 500,000 plus a week wages. I, Manchester City have tried very, very hard to sign Lionel Messi in the past. Uh, Messi has used Manchester City's interest to get the salary he is on at present. 
um, Khaldun Al-Mubarak, the uh, chairman of Manchester City and one of the most influential men in Abu Dhabi is on record as saying that the transfer he regrets um, not landing above all others is Lionel Messi's. So I think Graham is not going to be wrong in suggesting that there is strong interest at Manchester City in still hiring um, Lionel Messi. Um, and uh, they're one of the few clubs who would have the financial potential to do that deal. And I think he's also uh, not going to be ill-informed in saying that Guardiola would have reservations about bringing Messi into the team for the reason that you have to structure the team entirely around the player. Um, and uh, can you get the kind of high-tempo, high-intensity football that's so fundamental to the way Guardiola has made Manchester City successful? in the Premier League with Lionel Messi in the heart of it. You can certainly have a very, very good football team and you can have a team that will win things. But um, Guardiola has exceptionally high standards. He builds in a, a long-term fashion to play a team game that is the one that he feels has the best opportunity to win the most titles. And, um, and it... The tendency has been for him to avoid players who don't fit the system. And Lionel Messi today is not the Lionel Messi that Pep Guardiola brought into the Barcelona side those years ago. He's a, he's a different figure um, who has you know, who has talked himself about how football gets harder for him physically each year and talked about how he doesn't know how much longer he can play um, top-level football for. So if you're Messi... Um, and you have that consideration in your head, it would seem strange to choose to go to the Premier League um, from Spain. Most of the noises from people around Messi are that from, from a family perspective, he's very happy and comfortable living in Barcelona and he's not actually seeking a move away. It's He wants changes at the club he's at rather than um, leaving the club to, for a new experience in, in European football. Well, Leo, if you're listening, and I'm sure you probably are, um, I happen to have a small wager about Mauricio Pochettino being the next manager of Manchester City, and I think he'd be the perfect coach for you at the Etihad. So um, feel free to get in touch. We can make an arrangement and uh, everyone can be happy, including <laughs> my bookmaker. Duncan, we're going to move on to the um, continuing um, negative effects on Premier League clubs and all clubs, of course, uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we brought you news a couple of weeks ago about Southampton's struggles with restructuring financially. Uh, we mentioned as well that clubs like Burnley, Crystal Palace are also seeking to um, find ways of simply paying the bills day to day because, of course, there's no cash income from match days, which is something which I think a lot of people underestimate in terms of what keeps football clubs going. But Bournemouth have also fallen foul of uh, COVID. Uh, I say foul, it's not their fault. Um, and indeed are seeking um, some advice with regards to their finances. 
Uh, with regard to uh, the club itself, they are a much smaller organisation than most uh, Premier League clubs in terms of their running costs. So they do not require uh, loans as large or as um, interest unfriendly as some clubs. But it does mean that they would be likely to sell some of their prize playing assets this summer. Uh, one being Nathan Ake, their centre-back. Another one being Josh King, who of course was subject of interest from Manchester United in January. Uh, Duncan, obviously there's no easy answer to this question with regards to how clubs deal with the fallout from COVID-19. Um, with Bournemouth, it's obviously complicated by the very, very real threat of relegation. Um, but surely losing Ake and or King would be extremely detrimental to the chances of coming back up straight away as well. I think uh, if Bournemouth don't turn things around very quickly, they're going to be a championship club. Um, and it, you only have to look at their uh, their form um, well, for almost the entirety of this year, this calendar year, to see that uh, they are on um, a run in which they last won a match and at the beginning of February. Um, they've lost seven and drawn one of their last eight games. They're 19th on 27 points. They're only one point off safety, but um, they don't look like getting many points in the games they have left. They have a squad, I'm told, where a number of players are unhappy with their situation. We've already seen Ryan Fraser uh, refusing to take up a contract for the remainder of this uh, restart season. And uh, uh, one of the players who was due to be out of contract has substantial interest or opportunity to move to um, clubs who can pay him more money and decided not to take the risk of playing the remainder of the games. He was he remains the seventh most used player in, in Bournemouth squad, um, unavailable to the manager, Eddie Howe. Um, you're right to uh, pinpoint Josh King, who I'm told was extremely unhappy that Bournemouth did not allow him to leave to Manchester United. Um, on deadline day when United were making those offers to to bring in a, a backup striker. When remember they had that problem of uh, Marcus Rashford's um, injury was for what looked like it was going to be for the remainder of the season, had the, the season played out in, in its normal circumstances. So even then they had two of their key forwards unhappy with the situation. I'm told there are other players at the club who... Um, uh, are looking for an exit regardless of whether Bournemouth remain in the Premier League or not. Um, so yeah, that they they don't have their troubles to seek, and um, I think that there's also a feeling that um, Eddie Howe's excellence in, in keeping Bournemouth in the in the Premier League um, and improving their uh, the points returns and, and several of those seasons has, uh, has run its course and run into a number of difficulties, some, some of them caused by poor recruitment um, on the part of the club. And, uh, and yes, if they go down, you're going to need quite a radical um, restructure of, uh, of the squad because their finances are very, very heavily weighted towards television revenue from the Premier League. 
um, which means that uh, they will have to make a, a more radical cut to their wage bill than, uh, than some other clubs um, should they lose the Premier League status. It seems, Duncan, for a long time, um, there's been almost um, an artificial life support, if you like, um, which has been funded by the ex extraordinary broadcast revenue generated by the Premier League, so that clubs like Bournemouth, and as I mentioned the other two before, Burnley, Southampton, Crystal Palace, are able to pay some players in excess of £4 million per year uh, in order to recruit them. Uh, but now, in the current climate where reality has kicked in, in terms of finances, it's almost like um, the Premier League is being uh, turned over to Darwinian survival of the fittest, uh, whereby uh, you can't rely anymore, not just in the broadcast money, but obviously, as we've mentioned previously, match the revenue as well. And therefore, it's about either your coach is very good at getting the best out of the players he's got, or you struggle um, entirely in what you're trying to do, um, and therefore you will be relegated to the championship. Of course, there's still this overhanging issue which is being disputed by the chief executive of the EFL, Rick Parry, which is the parachute payment. That is becoming more of an issue and will continue to be an issue because the Premier League have refused uh, Parry's invitation, uh, let's just put it that way politely, to scrap the parachute payment. I just wonder um, if more pressure will now be put upon the Premier League with regards to parachute payments uh, in the light of what is a new financial reality? Well, the, the EFL is looking to restructure and talking about issues of, of salary caps. And yes, you're right, Rick Parry has brought up um, the subject to parachute payments on, on a number of occasions and saying that that um, fundamentally messes with the finances of the championship because you have a, you know several clubs within the championship who have these hangover revenues from the Premier League which allow them to pay players to pay players more money um, than the rivals which that in turn forces, or has tended to push rivals to up their wages beyond the level that their um, their natural um, revenues support, because they are then chasing the opportunity to a be in the Premier League and get a se at least a, a season of um, the Premier League broadcast revenues, and b if they come back down to have those um, parachute payments to work with to try and get back up into the Premier League, and there have been clubs who've followed the kind of yo-yo promotion strategy of um, we we go up this year, um, we take the money um, from the Premier League, we use the, the the three years of guaranteed money on a long-term financial planning with the idea that we've eventually got a, a squad strong enough to stay in the Premier League. Um, it's the, it is at the time for the championship and for the EFL to look at restructuring, um, but there are a lot of vested interests in there. And, and I think also there are a lot of owners who are wondering whether they still want to be involved in championship club projects. Um, I, I have realised that, uh, that chasing 
Premier League access can be a very, very expensive, damaging um, dream if you don't actually get in there. Well, that's very true. And um, a subject very close to our heart, as you will recognise from the name of the podcast, The Transfer Window, of course, is the fact that the Premier League will meet again on Thursday of this week to decide the dates in which the transfer window will operate this summer. Two options are available, Duncan, as we know. One is to effectively open immediately, which could be as soon as this Friday and close in September, or go with FIFA stroke UEFA guidelines, which would see the window open after the end of competitive football, but remain open until 5th of October, I think it is, Duncan, is that correct? 5th of October is the date that the UEFA proposed. How do we think this will um, influence? Um, because let's face it, uh, we've got a delayed start to next season and a delayed finish, obviously. Uh, we also have European Championships, which is going to take place next summer as well. Uh, the market itself has effectively been going for the last two months. We've seen players sign uh, for clubs in England who simply just can't be registered yet because the official opening of the window has not uh, been as yet uh, uh, approved by everyone. Um, do we think it'll make a lot of difference or do you think we'll still see that mad rush for deadline day uh, come October rather than September? I think the, the date it opens is irrelevant because, as you say, the clubs are already operating and, and doing deals and we, we've seen major deals um, put in place um, by Chelsea in particular um, long ahead of well, not even knowing when the window was going to open and we still don't know when the window is going to open. I think the deadline date is very important. UEFA want that October 5th deadline because um, they are going to put a, a date for registration of players um, on October 6th for Champions League competition. So they're suggesting that the, the logical um, way to ensure integrity of, of the competition in the Champions League is for all the European leagues to finish on October the 5th in terms of their, their transfer windows. But that's just the recommendation from UEFA. It's completely open to the individual leagues, as it usually is, to decide um, when they close their windows as long as they remain within FIFA guidelines. Now, FIFA allow you one long summer um, window and a, and a short um, uh, January winter window, um, one month window. Um, so you have two windows during the season. FIFA have said they will allow up to an extra four weeks on the long window this summer as a way to deal with COVID. And it will be up to national associations to decide how they use it. Um, I suspect the clubs will want as long a window as possible, given that they don't, they're, they're trying to plan at the moment with uncertain revenues. Um, they're trying to work out what other clubs are doing. It's, it, it's <laughs> the most unpredictable transfer window we've ever seen, because usually at least you know the dates and you have a solid idea what your revenues are going to be for next season. And then you can start working to find out what market values are. Um, in the context of which clubs are are prepared to offer money, um, and you you have a longer gap between seasons, so you know 
where clubs are in terms of Champions League qualification or not. We talked at the start of the podcast about Manchester United and Jadon Sancho and, and, and Manchester United trying to limit their, their spend on Jadon Sancho. Manchester United don't know if they've got Champions League football yet. Um, yet they have to plan and build their squad for a starter season, which presumably, and again, they don't know exactly when they're going to be starting playing Premier League football again yet, but presumably it's not going to be long after they finish European competition. So that there, there are so many uncertainties in terms of when we start the next regular season, how much revenue you can get from that regular season because you don't know um, how Champions League revenues are going to be affected. You don't know whether Champions League will be able to be played throughout it. And remember, the European competitions are the most complicated ones because you've got travel between countries involved in those. Um, you don't know what your match day revenue is going to be for the coming season. And I, and I think if you're being careful, you certainly shouldn't calculate that the whole of the next season will be played through without complications because we've we see at the moment the European competitions, Europa League and the Champions League to be completed in Portugal uh, in August. Why was Portugal chosen? Because Portugal had been relatively COVID free and had managed to manage the situation well. Uh, therefore, it was considered to be the safest environment in which to put um, these high-level European competitions to ensure they were played out. Portugal is now having a significant second-wave COVID problem, um, which is putting into question whether having those European competitions there is um, a good idea or not. So if you've got such an uncertainty over so many factors, the rational thing to do would be to leave the window open as long as possible to give clubs scope to sell um, is our way out of trouble if they need to and uh, give clubs a longer time to plan and uh, and put those important financially uh, extremely sensitive decisions into effect as to who they recruit and who they give contracts to. As sometimes happens, Duncan, and you may be surprised to hear this, when you give such a forensic answer to a short question, I, I drift off sometimes. <laughs> I find myself by the water in Portofino, a uh, beautiful little place in Italy. And I asked if I could have the spaghetti vongoli, spaghetti with clams. And the waiter said, I'm not sure, sir, but if you wait, I can tell you. So I said, that's fine. <laughs> and I waited. And after 40 minutes, I saw a man arrive into the port. He then brought a net of clams to the restaurant. And I had my spaghetti vongoli 10 minutes later. Now, of course, the analogy here and is the message, good things come to those who wait. So everyone is listening. <laughs> you know, the transfer window is coming. And the good thing is, it's coming to you through the transfer window podcast, as my spaghetti vongoli did in Portofino. So um, anyway, just indulge me for that one for a while. Uh, as we do, indeed, with our heroes and villains section, which we will end this uh, particular podcast with. Uh, Duncan, I know my hero is, and so I'm going to make you do the villain. Um, so my hero is uh, Hugo Lloris, because he is the first man that I know, the first footballer I know, to call out the nicest man in football, who, of course, 
is Hoyman's son, known to his teammates and his friends as Sonny. He is the person who is the most polite. He is very generous. And he always plays the right ball. Uh, so means his kindness extends to his teammates as well. And of course, he got involved in a spat with teammate Hugo Lloris uh, during the game, um, which uh, ended in a 1-0 win for Tottenham against Everton. So my hero is Hugo Lloris uh, for the fact that he had the bravery and also um, the cojones to call out the nicest man in football. Um, and of course, went on to win the game with his Tottenham teammates, Duncan. Well, first of all, I want to know how the Vino Verde was with your clams in Portofino. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it was gorgeous, actually. Yeah, a little bit chilly. That's all. Some parsley. That's that's a perfect mixture. Um, and it was, as I said, it was well worth the forty-minute wait to get those straight from the sea. Sensational. I, I recommend it to everyone. <laughs> Free meals with every podcast. Um, <laughs> I think the villain of the week, I think we're going to have to uh, give Hugo Lloris a, a very special award. He can be the first person to be both hero and villain on the Transfer oh. Window podcast in the same week because he called out the nicest man in football, Jung Wen Song, when um, he actually hadn't done anything wrong. No, he didn't track back. I, I disagree. I disagree. He should have tracked back. He, he effectively was party to giving the ball away and then didn't press um, on the Everton defence, who then passed the ball forward and then resulted in Loris having to make a save that maybe he didn't need to make. I think Loris thought that, um, that Son had, uh, had pulled out of the challenge for a ball that he wasn't able to uh, get hold of because it had been overhit. And, uh, and that... Right contributed to his anger but um, as uh, as Jose Mourinho said at, in his post-match interview he was responsible for all of that because he'd uh, he'd called the team together um, to tear strips off them and, and say that their um, attitude and, uh, and exertion levels had not been um, acceptable against Sheffield United and, uh, and expected them to, to compete as a team um, and put the uh, the, the requisite uh, energy levels in across the pitch to ensure they won that match. So um, Hugo Lloris, hero and villain with a, with an assisting role from Jose Mourinho. Okay, very quickly, a bonus story, Duncan, which I'm sure our listeners always like. Um, everyone knows about the massive spat which saw Teddy Sharing and Andy Cole not speak to each other for most of their career at Manchester United. The source of that spat was a corner kick in which they were taking and the ball then went up the pitch. The opposition had a goal screen opportunity, which they didn't take. Sheringham tracked back and Cole didn't. When Sheringham confronted Cole about the fact he didn't track back, having been in the same box as he was, despite the fact that Sheringham had run all the way back, Cole's response was, Andy Cole don't make tea. <laughs> so I, I reckon if Hoymanson wasn't the nicest man in football he would have said Hoymanson don't make tea <laughs> so there we go 
that's that's the things that happen in football. That's how footballs fall out. And those two did never speak during their career at Manchester United after that. Thank you uh, for listening today to the Transfer Window podcast. If you want to join the discussion and debate on who makes the tea, then please do. Uh, our social media uh, channels uh, are open for your deliberation and debate. And they are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram and on Facebook. You can contact Duncan um, individually and at Duncan Castles on Twitter and myself at Garbo SJ. The podcast is now available on YouTube. Please just go on to the site and search at Transfer Window Podcast. Also, if you like what you've heard, and we know you do, please log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and the community expands. And we all find out who makes the tea. Um, enough tea analogies for today. We'll be back later this week. Until then, it just leaves me to say, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.